This episode of the Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Nori. Feeling left out of carbon markets? Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com growers. Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture. I've got a great guest today, and we're talking about the future. We're talking about the future farmer. No, I'm not talking about FFA, the kids in the blue jackets. I'm talking about the future farmer. What does the future operator look like in this industry, the world's most important industry? You know, if you've read my book, Food Fear, I got a lot of things about future and outlook. I talk a lot about the realities that the fact that uh, we have a dwindling number of farmers, if you hear the, the alarmist media. Oh, it's so sad. We're losing farmers. Well, the truth is less farmers has always equaled more food. The reason we have less farmers is because we're so efficient, so much uh, gains of productivity. So we're going to talk about what this future operator looks like. My guest is Brett Scotto. Brett Scotto is the CEO of Aimpoint Research. They're a global strategic intelligence firm that services agriculture. They do a lot of outlook. They do a lot of forward looking scenarios and they advise agricultural clients. Brett and I are both scheduled to speak at the Council of Producers and Distributors of Agrotechnology. That's a group that does adjuvants. And uh, we're going to be there on May 20th uh, speaking at this conference, May 19th and May 20th in Nashville. So I found out about Brett because we're both scheduled to speak at the same conference. I love his topic. I love this topic. And that's why, dear listener, you are going to be hearing from Brett Scotto because maybe you're not going to make it to the Council of Producers and Distributors of Agrotechnology Conference. Brett, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Great to be with you, Damien. All right. So did I tee it up correctly? First off, I got your name right and I got your title right. Is that important? Absolutely. We are on the hunt. Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right. So I got that all right. And then did I set up our topic correctly? Because you are really uh, a lot about bringing outlook and future uh, vision to your clients that obviously want to be poised to be successful or not even, you know, do not go bankrupt in the in the future. Is that right? That's really right. Our firm is focused on helping leaders within agri-food really understand more deeply what's happening around them, the dynamics in the marketplace, and then to predict over time what's going to happen uh, so that they can act on it, so they can get a, a step advantage on others and, and think more deeply about what's over the horizon and make the right decisions in order to win in that environment. Brett, I mean, let's be honest here. I mean, we've gotten to know each other just a little bit, and we're going to probably have a beer when we're together in Nashville. Isn't this all just crystal ball bullshit? I mean, really, you don't really know what's going to happen in the future. You just come up with some crazy idea and then tell your clients, and it's kind of all like going and seeing the palm reader. Am I right? Well, predicting the future is certainly an art and a science, but I can tell you that uh, we put the, some useful tools together in order to be able to do this work. And you know, my background, I'm an Army intelligence officer by training and really enjoyed that the aspects within the military of kind of predicting what was going to happen next. And that was a major part of our job was to not only tell the commander what was happening on the battlefield today, but more importantly, how that 
condition would change over time and and uh, therefore how our mission would have to ultimately be pursued. And so we really built Aimpoint around the same tools and same processes that we used in the military. And, uh, and so we bring together everything from market research and data analytics to wargaming. Uh, wargaming, a tremendous tool that we brought from the Army that helps us develop uh, more clarity about the future, identify the key variables, and to see the action and reaction over time that allows us to make some pretty good predictions about that future state. And uh, certainly some things happen faster or slower than we may think they will. But at the end of the day, we have a pretty clear picture of that, uh, that future, which can help people plan. I was being facetious, as you well know. Uh, you didn't laugh as much as you should have when I said it's all just crystal ball bullshit and you're looking at, you know, palm reading. I, I know that there's a lot of actual analysis, but I myself also do some outlook stuff with my clients. And I can say you can disagree with my conclusion or prediction, but don't doubt the data. If I said, I've read this and I pulled this out of the wall street and I did this thing and I've got this expert. And I, so the data can be interpreted. And then of course the predictive part of it, looking ahead. So give me some data when we talk about the predictive part of it, uh, Brett, that you're saying, okay, here's something that maybe we know. And here's what my conclusion is that most people haven't thought about, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of that that goes on. Like, Okay, yeah, I've heard this, but I don't know what that means. And then you say, here's what you maybe or maybe have not heard, and here's what I think when it comes to the farmer of the future. You know, for, for many years, Damon, on your previous point, I used to have a slide with an eight ball on it. And I'd get a little bit of a laugh from the folks that knew what an eight ball was. You shake it up and kind of see what the answer to your question is. Yeah, we, we put a lot of data to work in this. Process. You think you got to be our age to even remember the eight ball thing? I mean, well, that's what I started to, to believe is the audience, you know, would partially react to it. So I decided, yeah, you're like, OK, OK, the 40, the, 40 and, the 40 and under crowd, the 35 <laughs> year old and under crowd, they don't have a clue that you'd sit around and say, am I going to have a fancy house when I grow up? And then you'd <laughs> flip the thing around, it would say. All answers are possibly. <laughs> look is hazy. <laughs> yeah, look is hazy. So, all right. So besides your eight ball, when you look at your data that maybe I've seen, maybe I've not seen, and then a conclusion that you can come up with, just kind of give me an example of that when you think about the farmer of the future. Yeah. So the journey we started back in 2018, it was our observation that the industry was only looking a couple of years out in their strategic planning process. And so we decided we were going to set out with a collaborative group of leaders from across the, the industry to answer this big question. Who are the farmers of the future and what will they require of us and have a 20 year viewpoint on that? We were looking out to 2040. And so that began with a lot of market research, a lot of qualitative interviews. And then we did a quantitative exercise called a psychographic segmentation, which is a really fancy word for letting math tell us how. Uh, different farmers within the universe approach farming differently, how they think about relationships, how they make decisions in adversity and how they ultimately navigate through the challenges of the day. A little bit beyond behaviors and demographics and deeper into the psychology of how these farmers approach the business. And then we put it into context over time with a series of wargaming exercises to kind of think about what they would face over the next uh, 20 years. 
A lot of interesting data came from the study. I mean, we, we learned you Are you pretty much just talking U.S. or North America? I mean, you serve mostly. The initial study was U.S., uh, but we're now applying it around the world. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was the initial baseline that I'll be presenting down in, in Nashville when you and I are there uh, is, a, is a U.S. study. And what we found are the, these five segments that generally are distributed pretty evenly. About uh, 41% are what we would call the farmers of the future. And what our study showed us, uh, they are more innovative, more open-minded, more entrepreneurial, uh, that they embrace growth, they're more empowered to make better decisions ultimately and are better positioned to continue to win over time. And so that 41%, and I'm happy to go through the personality types if you like, uh, ultimately becomes 71% of the farmer rancher universe over the next 20 years. So this entrepreneurial class of farmer with very specific personality attributes ultimately go on to lead and be a majority of the farmers that we're, we're going to be uh, serving in 2040. Uh, I, I fervently agree with you about the ability to be entrepreneurial, you know, and I've been telling my audience and, you know, I'm, I'm of the age where I can remember and I saw the thing and I saw the eighties and I, and I've seen the adaptation or lack of adaptation. I've seen the adoption of technology or the non-adoption of technology. And then I've also, I used to talk about the hiding the shop farmer. The I got the guy that just wants to be insular. He doesn't really like people. Well, he does. He gets together and goes to the coffee shop. That old coffee shop farmer crowd. It's gone away pretty much too. Thank God. Uh, They go and gossip at the coffee shop uh, farm operator. But the the one who wants to hide in the shop. It's always uh, fixing equipment. I always find that funny. Well, aren't you doing equipment repairs during the winter? I'm like, how much repairing do you think needs to be done? You know, <laughs> you spend six months in the winter repairing stuff. You've got a problem. But anyway, those folks that don't look at this as I said, you know, these folks would do a lot of good to be at their desk. They need to have a desk. They need to run their business as a business because it is a business with huge numbers, as you well know. So I think that the farmer of the future it needs to absolutely look at it as I'm the CEO or I'm the co-CEO, whatever. Or I've got a role. I think the business side of it, and like you said, the entrepreneurial side of it is uh, is there as well. Got to be. Yeah, that's, that's really right. And two of the five groups, so the independent elites and the enterprising business builders. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, two of the five groups. So give me the those. So is a category one, of what? They are categories of psychographics. So 20% of the farmer rancher universe are these independent elites. Top of the game, very successful farmers, uh, earlier adopters of technology, innovators, really think about the business side of their their enterprise. 21% are enterprising business builders, most entrepreneurial class, highest business IQ, really interested in shaking up how agriculture is done, looking for new models uh, closest to uh, the supply chains in terms of direct growing for food companies and retailers, uh, certainly more online, more data-centric, really aggressive group of farmers. 24% are classic practitioners. This is where the psychology starts to change. Classic practitioner. Now, wait a minute. I already know this person, and it does not a bash on them. No. Uh, they, they, They do stuff kind of the way mom and dad did. And they don't vary a lot from year to the next year. And when the, when the retailer comes out and says, well, you know, we got to order your inputs, 
Yeah, we'll pretty much do what we did last year. Is that the classic <laughs> practitioner? Uh, not almost. I mean, the classic practitioner is kind of stuck in their ways, a little more traditional for sure. Still have goals and aspirations, though. Want to grow, want to do things better, uh, but under some financial duress become a bit more risk adverse, a bit more set in their ways and lacking some of the business IQ to get to the next level. The group you're talking about, 22% are self-reliant traditionals. Oh, 22% self-reliant traditionals. They uh, are the ones that say, hey, we farmed this way for generations and we'll continue to farm this way for generations. Very stuck in their ways. Uh, very traditional, very uh, resistant to new technologies. Kind of the low cost shopper in the market really have really have gotten through tough times over the years by just saving money and being really thrifty and not reaching for that new equipment or, or that new approach. And they run it the same play every year uh, and will continue to as long as uh, they're able. I, the I really group, like, by the way, I know, I know people in every one of these categories and everyone that's listening to this right now knows people in this category. And I should have told you, Brett, I think probably one third to one half of my listeners would be ag industry folks, right? You know, they, they, they have an ag background. Now they work for seed, feed, chemical, machinery, farm finance, crop insurance, you know, name the thing. And uh, then we got the people that are, my listeners would be the more business minded ag folks. They're like, you know what? I'm listening to this. Cause I like the intelligent conversation. Uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not coffee shop talk. Um, but all of us that are listening right now are saying, yep, that describes so-and-so that describes so-and-so. <laughs> so uh, I want you to give me by my math here, we've got about a 17% uh, bottom crowd. Is that what we're looking at? Well, we got about 14%, what we call leverage lifestylers and the leverage lifestylers, you know, they love the practice of farming. They love the lifestyle of farming, the business. Uh, it's a little more elusive to them really have gotten themselves out on financial limbs, uh, tend to overreach for uh, the latest and greatest and don't really have a business plan or contemplate the ROI. And so those are the farms that are the, under the highest amount of uh, financial duress right now and the ones that are consolidating the fastest. So the the <clears throat> the leveraged lifestylers yeah. are not going to be here five years from now. They don't have long. No, that's, <laughs> they may not be here next year. And so when I, when I decide I've made a, a good chunk of money and I want to buy a chunk of ground, I'm going to be buying it from the leveraged lifestyler. They're probably top of the list. Okay. Yeah, the ones, and you know, what's interesting about this, Damien, is these leveraged lifestylers are some pretty big farms. In fact, in every one of these categories, there are large farms and small farms and old, older farmers and younger farmers. The demographics can be really misleading. Uh, and so, yeah, the leveraged lifestylers are consolidating the fastest, followed by the classic practitioners uh, who are, you know, trying, trying to make it, but lacking some of the tools. Self-reliant traditionals fade over time, but they're kind of, if you're a pilot, they're kind of on a long final. They just continue to uh, find themselves more and more out of step with what the industry requires. Yeah. So kind of going back up the list here, leveraged lifestylers, as you point out, it doesn't mean that they only are out here pillar around on 80 acres. You know, it doesn't mean that no. they have 
a million dollars worth of machinery to service 160 acres, although that could be a category, they could also be overextended, ass over backwards, uh, way over their skis and be farming several thousand acres, just not really doing it from a good business standpoint, right? That's really right. I mean, it's it's easy to do a demographic look at the farmer rancher universe. What we found through this research is that is hugely misleading. The psychographics give you a better clue. There are some small farms out there that are growing like rockets. And there are some enormous farms out there that are, are coming down and they'll be for, for sale. And so the farmer who's operating them gives you more of an inclination to understand what's going to happen. Leveraged lifestylers. We just went through that. And then going back up the list, self-reliant traditionalists. And you said they resist new technology. They've been around a long time. And they're the ones that um, mostly get by by being savers or is that the practitioners? They you know they get by by being savers. Self-reliant traditionalist means they're still out there with the John Deere 4020 uh, doing their field work and and they're going to try and squeeze a nickel. They're the people who think you can save your way to prosperity. You can save your way to fortunes, which saving is good, but yeah. saving at the expense of uh, growth is generally usually bad or right. That's right. And the first two groups that I mentioned, they believe they can invest their way to prosperity, which means they're willing to take short-term risk. They're willing to spend more uh, to get a better result. Even if in the near term, they have to take some sort of a loss, they are focused on a longer term business strategy. A self-reliant traditionalist though, might be around for a long time only because they still, they still have the first dollar that uh, grandpa gave. That's really right. You get it. That's, that's absolutely. So they have some longevity there longer than some of the other groups because they're just really not out there on a limb. I mean, they're very conservative. It's a classic practitioner. You said was 24% of the, the, the farming operations or operators traditional. You said the words risk averse. Uh, they tend to be uh, the tough part here is, and I get it. You know, if you've lived through enough, uh, enough storms, you understand aversion to risk, but you're also probably not in, I usually talk about that there's thrive mode and survive mode. Are they permanently stuck in survive mode? Classic practitioners? Absolutely. Yeah, they're going to ride that horse until they can't ride it anymore, but they are not willing to go left or right to evolve or transform the way the industry is going to require. And there are a lot of forces at play on all of these groups coming from the, you know, the, the what I call the fourth agricultural revolution. <laughs> so then you, you, you went into, I want to get to that in a minute, enterprising business builders. Um, again, high business IQ. These are people that are the, they aren't the hide in the shop. They are the guy at the desk, maybe, maybe too much in the office and not enough, uh, in the field. Is that kind of what we're thinking about with the enterprising business builder? They just have a long range view of the business. And so they're looking for the highest and best use out of every piece of equipment, out of every team member. And they are more what you would call a prototypical successful CEO of any enterprise, even outside of agriculture. So they are pulling the strings. They are calling the shots. They are the keepers of the vision and they are moving uh, and transforming their operation to be competitive. And then independent elites, you said was 20%. That's the one you led off with the traits on an independent elite. They're really good at what they do, right? I mean, these guys are getting, good. they're getting good yields. They run a good business. The difference between the independent elite and an enterprising business builder is the independent elites are kind of at the top of the hill, very, very successful farmers, very self-reliant, have surrounded themselves with a group of advisors that have helped them navigate through. The enterprising business builders are charging up at after them. They are the ones that are really changing 
the industry, the way they approach the management of their operations, they're vertically integrating, tend to be more diverse. So they're just uh, in, in terms of entrepreneurialism, the enterprising business builder really is on, uh, on lighter fluid. You know, they're, they're coming up to change the model uh, to challenge the rest. Got it. So I work with a group of uh, guys, Extreme Ag, which I should make sure our listeners know about that. You can go to extremeag.farm. There's no E on the front of Extreme. Extremeag.farm. Five five farm operations that would be in that independent elite and enterprising business builders. They are entrepreneurially. They actually do have some vertically integrated uh, concepts to their business. They generally have multiple business interests besides just their farm. And they also are a group that does a lot of information sharing. So if you want to see all the great content we're creating, go to extremeag.farm. And uh, I've been with them now since last summer, and we are creating all kinds of very helpful, useful information. Uh, it's free. Go check it out. It's uh, extremeag.farm, video and audio podcast you can listen to. Um, we're going to, speaking of uh, my work and, and being entrepreneurial, we're going to make sure that we give a little love to companies that help all make this all possible. That's by giving us sponsorship money. So uh, we're going to hear from my friends at Pattern Ag right now. And then we're going to come back and we're going to hear some more about the farmer of the future from my guest, Brett Scotto. Hey, folks, got a question for my farmer and landowner friends out there. Have you ever lost yield to an unexpected pest or disease? Of course you have. Every season, you're forced to guess about some of your most important management decisions. What if I told you that you don't have to anymore? Pattern Ag offers the most advanced soil analysis available today. In addition to a comprehensive nutrient analysis, like any soil survey would give you, Pattern can predict next season's risk from the most damaging of pests and diseases. Things like corn rootworm, soybean cyst nematode, sudden death syndrome, and more. For the first time ever, a single soil analysis can help you optimize your crop protection and fertility spend at a subfield, field, and operational level. Isn't it time to refine your management decisions, optimize your inputs, and maximize your yield? Of course it is. Go to www.pattern.ag and get started today. All right, we're back. Thank you, uh, Pattern Ag, for being a sponsor. Brett Scotto, CEO of Aimpoint Research, global strategic intelligence firm that services the business of agriculture. We just talked about the five uh, psychographics, the five personalities uh, within the farmers, and we talked about the predictive part of that is where they end up. We're going to cover just a little bit on that, and then I want to get to American food power, but I want to stick with this thing because everybody right now is deciding where they fit in. So all these farm hoppers are doing it. Do the, do the classic practitioners admit to themselves that they're probably only going to be around for a few more years? Do you think they actually know that? The classic practitioners better than most admit that they lack some of the, the know-how and the tools to get to the next level. So they tend to be looking for help, very collaborative, asking for for assistance and for knowledge and trying to navigate their way to success. But as they become more under financial duress, they tend to pull back uh, and become more risk adverse. And that can be cyclical. You know, the market's up right now, but inputs are way up right now. And so, you know, they're, they're, that delta can be pretty, pretty tight, uh, depending on how they're making their decisions and running their operation. But at least they're, they're self-aware enough to know that they need some help. I, I like it. 
which ones are the least self-aware? Are the are the leveraged lifestylers the ones that, that I got Junior Junior has a brand new F two fifty blowing smoke out the smokestack and uh, and ma- Mama and me go uh, on a seed trip every year and while we're there we go ahead and just uh, you know live it up but we ain't really got any money that's really what we're talking about is that they are you got it right all, all flash no cash right. The leverage lifestyle, or if you had a checklist for how to be a great farmer, they've checked all the boxes. They got the biggest truck, the coolest equipment. They got the green hat. They got it all. They've done it all uh, in a way that is, uh, they believe, is is the recipe for success. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when the markets are really good and everything's fine, they're they're successful. But they find themselves way out there on that limb pretty fast. And, and they have a negative attitude about that. They don't think it's their fault. They think the industry let them down. The government let them down. The markets let them down. China let them down. Somebody else is to blame for their lot in life. And so they have a, a great deal of negativity about that. So being overextended is the hallmark of their thing, but also a lack of self-awareness. And then, you know, I came up doing comedy and I talk about it in my business book. By God, you want to get really good at something because, you know, comedy, almost nobody becomes a professional. You know, there's open mic, open micers, every comedy club in town. You get to where you can make it your business is because you analyzed your show, your set every night after you got done. You went and broke down the tape and listened to it and said, boy, I sucked at that seven minute mark. (laughs) I think that being self-critical, they always say, you know, all the Oprah Winfrey's, oh, you shouldn't be self-critical. Be your best. You, you are awesome. That's bullshit. You know what? You're not awesome. And you don't get better by telling yourself and giving yourself accolades all the time. Being self-aware and self-critical makes you a more successful person. Who's the most self-critical out of this group of five here? Wow. I'd say the enterprising business builder is the one that's constantly looking in the mirror saying, what can I do better? No matter what level of success they get to, they think they can do better. Uh, And so they are constantly looking for ways to evolve and transform that make them more competitive and they never rest on their laurels. I I like that. Okay. Uh, Takeaways from this. You said, when we said we're talking about the farmer of the future, we just decided that the leveraged lifestyles are going to be hard, you know, two bad years and and they're going to have a problem and they come in all variety. There's some, you know, they're they're big, they're small, whatever. Self-reliant traditionalists probably do actually stick around because they haven't spent a dollar, you know, they haven't spent a dollar since they're like, they're like the version of Amish, if you will. Right. They just, they're like, they're, they're still just back, back, backwards in time. That's really right. And so what we did, we did this war gaming activity uh, three different times with the industry, had 70 plus different leaders at each one. And we navigated out, you know, identified what are the key variables over time? What will these farmers have to contend with? What are the key dynamics that change the environment? And then we modeled out which of these segments prevail. And, And what we found is that the independent elites and the enterprising business builders, which make up 41% collectively today, become 71% by 2040. The classic practitioners are down to about 5%. Uh, The self-reliant traditionals are hanging in there near 20%. And the leveraged lifestylers of today are gone. But there'll be a couple new ones. There'll be be more that will emerge over time. Well, remember, because as as long as there's still the kid in VOAG, uh, who's 16 years old and he either has the, the smoke blowing new F-250 with chrome, a lot of chrome on it, or he uh, aspires to that. By golly, they still are. They got to be here, right? We still need that kid. Always going to be some of them. Like you said, they'll come up. Uh, sometimes it seems to me 
that the leveraged lifestyler might even be the offspring, boy or girl, of the person that was a, a, an operator. And the bad thing is, you know, the apple falls a little far from the tree and they, uh, they spoil the kid. And next thing you know, he, he or she becomes a leveraged lifestyler out of lack of business acumen or discipline. Does that happen? It really goes both ways. You're right. I mean, it, the, the spoiled uh, folk that have kind of a false perception of the business of, of farming and agriculture can certainly grow up and make bad decisions on the farm and vice versa. You could have a very traditional farmer and their children come back with an entrepreneurial flair. So it can go both ways. The key part of this is that farms don't have psychographics. Farmers do. And so you can change the very nature of an operation very quickly and we, we study, you know, how is that handoff between one generation to the next generation? And sometimes it happens where you have the father working for the son or the daughter uh, who has a, a, an open mind to the fact that there needs to be new ideas in the operation. And conversely, sometimes you have that, uh, that mom and dad that are holding on too long, won't let the kids take over oh, yeah. and, and they stranglehold it until it, they either don't want to come back or uh, the farm operation is too far in the red. And so it goes both ways. <clears throat> I love it. And uh, we, we wondered before we started recording, if we were going to hit on another topic about um, food and the global situation. And I want to have you back for that six or 12 months down the road, because I'm too fascinated by this whole psychographic stuff. You said farms don't have psychographics. Farmers do, meaning it ain't about the operation. It's about the operator. That's right. I mean, you can you can see a, a young uh, kid, boy or girl, come back to the operation after going off to Purdue or going off to one of these great universities, and they come back with ideas and they're entrepreneurial, more open minded to technology, and they can take a farm that was previously run by a self reliant traditional, and they can change and transform it pretty fast. And so, yeah. it really is about who's leading it. And by the way, you like you love to see that happen. So uh, there's a girl named a woman named Jolene Brown. She speaks at conferences, and she and I are friends. And in fact, I've had her on this podcast. She talks a lot about the handoff, a lot about the generational stuff. And she was at a presentation in Iowa where I was uh, this winter, and she's talking through all these things. And I didn't. I'm a biggest champion of agricultural year of meat, but when people do stupid stuff and refuse to re take good counsel. I'm like, you know, screw those people. When she's talking about, well, they insisted that they plug in. It's the old thing of they're going to plug in the son because the daughter, well, she can run off and get married. I'm like, what the hell is this? You know, 1850. And, you know, and so they end up, she sees, she'll, she'll tell these stories about, well, they put this kid in who's just an absolute screw up, just an absolute screw up. But they always babied him and poor, you know, poor little Johnny, blah, blah. I think these operations deserve what they get. And I'm not being mean, but it's a business after all. And you see it. it is a business and some will succeed and some won't. And as we've modeled all of this that we've talked about in these dynamics over 20 years, you know, there are three million farmers today, roughly about two million farm operations. When we model it out, one, we see accelerated consolidation over the next 20 years, up to 45 percent consolidation. Sixty thousand farms will do 75 percent of the agriculture output of the United States, 60,000 out of 2 million. Yeah. Well, it's right now. And I talked about this in my book, food fear uh, about the reality of who does the, who produces the food right now. And you and I are probably close. I think it's 105,000 of exactly. the 2 million right. operations That's right. that are producing three quarters of the food or at least three quarters of the ag revenue. So we're going to take from 105,000 as of two years ago, when I did my research, 
we're going to bring that down to even about half of that, right? That's right. And that's the same number we use, 105,000 today, because audiences will look at me, crowds, they'll say, no way. There's 2 million farms out there. You're telling me that it's only going to be 60,000 doing three quarters. And I said, today it's 105. And that is what will continue to to evolve. And about 45% of the farmers that are out there today won't be with us in 2040. They won't be farming. Right. And if you're a reader of the New York Times or you listen to NPR, they uh, they 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 love to tell the story about, uh, well, it's because the government policies are just uh, propping up big ag. I'm like, actually, that's not true. It's the opposite. Yeah. It's actually just the opposite because they put all sorts of income limitations and usually they're propping up an inefficient, smaller uh, lack of a non-adopting, non-adapting uh, example. I gave dairy farm background when NPR did a big poor, poor us story. About two people who are 80 years old with kids that were like my age, milking like 46 cows in a tie stall barn in Wisconsin, just like you would have in 1950. And they were lamenting that this is what's so tragic. Factory farms are putting these people out of business. Like if you haven't evolved since 1950, your ass should be out of business, right? That's really right. Yeah, we went in the war game that we did in 2019. It, that was one of the key findings is that the industry and all of the organizations and advocacy groups and the government by 2040 will lose the will, the capability to try to save all these farms that are running inefficiently or or in a very traditional mode. And they just lose that capability. So it becomes about food, not farms. Yeah. And and it really when, is. When, you, when do you see that sort of a policy and mind shift perception, if you will? When do you see that happening next five years? I think 10? it's starting to happen now. I mean, I think we'll see it over. I, what what just went what happened during the pandemic and the money that that moved into agriculture was pretty substantial, yeah. uh, as you know. But as we model out representation in Congress, we model out what we think will be some of the policy debates over time in the farm bill. You know, I, I think in the next decade, you'll see that mindset really shift and it'll it'll no longer be about we have to save farm family farms. It'll be about reinforcing uh, the complex that allows us to have food security in our country and yeah. to protect so, it around the world. So it's a bit of a policy mind shift and, and all that. And that's why I want to have you back in six or 12 months to do a, a, on that subject. The farmer of the future about the personality stuff, Brett. What surprised you or what What do you think would surprise? Probably not you because you've been a data guy and a, and a predictive guy your whole career, go back to the military. What do you think would most surprise even folks like me in agriculture? Like something that you present uh, like you will at this conference in May and people are like, oh, wow, I, I didn't think of that. I think the well, the biggest surprises for me weren't in the psychographics. I think the psychographics, you can see that pattern even in other industries and other places. What surprised me the most was what came out of the war game and the fact that, you know, the the infrastructure, the systems that we have built across agri-food that really made us the model and the envy of the world over the last hundred years, the most productive agricultural industry on the planet simply will not carry us the next hundred years. Uh, so observation one, we are incredibly ripe for disruption and the models have to shift faster than we see them actually changing. Part of that, by the way, goes back to the mindsets on these boards, farmer boards that are running a lot of these organizations, co-ops and others. And so we have to get that more entrepreneurial mindset in the mix of leadership. Second big takeaway was just the incredible power 
of the consumer, the gravitational force that the consumer has over time on the on the industry and on the supply chains because of the need for food companies and retailers to build that trust that a consumer is expecting. It has incredible transformative power all the way across agriculture, even to the input providers to the farm. And so that change is happening and in many ways is only going to accelerate over the next decade to two. And it's going to leave a lot of people in its dust. And so the the key takeaway from all of these war games is the need to embrace the change, the need to embrace the, the transformation that's happening, not fight it, not defend it, not get entrenched and try to say, no, we got to hold on to the, the way we did business over the last hundred years. We got to let go of that and transform faster. So, I mean, you're not the first person that comes in and tells everybody, hey, you got to get ready for change. Yeah. And, uh, and, and in no way I'm imagining you because of this reality. What I tell my audiences is 10,000 years of agriculture, what happened basically beginning 100 years ago, hybridization of corn, new chemistry, bringing, you know, getting rid of horses and bringing in machinery. That really all began about 1920, right? 100 right. years ago. We right. saw more change from 1920 till 2022 in the last 100 years, more than happened in the 9,900 years prior to that. Amen. We're going to see, in my opinion, that much again in the next 10. When we've totally got- agree. You know, the new sponsor, Pattern Ag, uh, talking about predicting soybean diseases based on a soil sample, you know, before they ever happened. That's kind of technology we never had. This Nori company that's a sponsor for me, marketing carbon so that when you talk about the independent leads or the entrepreneur enterprising business builders, they're looking at ways to get companies to give them money for carbon sequestration. It's a new revenue source for their farm. You know, these things didn't exist five years ago, 10 years ago. So I, I'm with you that there's going to be all this. Adapting the changes, again, starts with, by God, if you don't view this as a business, then bring in one of your kids or better yet, some other person and say, I need you to be a hired business consultant, or I'm just going to hire you to be my, my business manager. Uh, and that's where I think it comes 10 years from now, the farms that are existing absolutely have the business part of it dialed in. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we're seeing this confluence of genetics and technology and data and requirements that are, are increasing that pace of change just the way you suggested. And if you have an open-minded operator and you're embracing that, you can continue to win. But we, we had some farmers, for example, in, in one of the war games that said, look, I understand what you're telling me about technology and what the consumer wants and what the food chain is going to want. I understand all of that, but this is my farm. I'm proud of what I've built. And we have done it this way for generations of this family. And I, I'm not going to be told how to farm. In fact, I will go down with this ship before any food company is going to walk in and tell me how to farm. And that's a great soundbite, except that we think they're absolutely right. They're going to go down with the ship right to the bottom of the ocean. It's just not how it works. It's not how it's going yeah. to work. So like, like you're talking about this whole thing, ESG. Now, maybe it goes away, but it looks like it's still ramping up. Environmental, social, and governance right. mandates and standards so that these companies can go and tell all of their customers and their shareholders, we care so much. We're going to tell all of the farms that we buy product from, here's how you're going to do it. And like you said, some are going to say, I'm not doing that. And some are going to say, listen, man, it looks to me like it's a ticket. The, the, the permit for me to sell comes by me complying to some of your standards. It's happened that way before on contractual things. If you grow 
malt or barley for uh, Coors, they're going to tell you what kind or, you know, whatever. I think it's going to get more and more that way, Brett, where between the consumer and the corporations, they're going to be dictating some things to us about some of our practices. Yes. No, no question about that. And I'll, I'll go one step further and tell you that the, the farmers of the future, we just did some uh, new surveys and new research around ESG and around uh, data and some of the online, you know, ordering of goods and all these things. The farmers of the future aren't waiting to be told. They are leaning forward on regenerative practices, leaning forward on soil health, that more advanced look at soil health. They're thinking deeper about how do we farm more sustainably and more efficiently in a way that's congruent with what the consumer and the food agri-food value. And more importantly, is there there a chance to charge a premium? Is there a chance to uh, commoditize a commodity by being just a little bit of a premium on that? And then all of a sudden, if it's profitable, right? That's really right. And they're, they're, they're early movers. Then they have first mover advantage and they have preferential access to the supply chains. Got a guy that's uh, my, he lives in my home County. He's part of my business of ag group, Andy, and he's probably listening to this right now. Um, An organic producer. And he didn't, he wasn't raised an organic producer, uh, but he said, I wasn't that well capitalized. To me, it was purely about business. I can, with very little capital and a young man, get into this business and make a premium with less available capital by doing the organic thing. And he's all about, it's about the business, it's about the profit. I mean, $40 organic soybeans versus 16 or whatever they are right now, conventional. And I think that that's what the future looks like. Like, I've got to look at, what business model I can operate because like you said, uh, just um, doing it the way uh, my dad did it is obviously not going to work. That's right. You you have to let go of some of that, that pride and adapt. So look at the business situation. And you know, the, the interesting thing is there is more money to be made in some of these niche opportunities. And before they're mass adopted, that early mover has an advantage for sure in the marketplace. Psychographics. Farms don't have psychographics. Farmers do. That's my that's my favorite line that you gave me so far. Uh, <laughs> farmer of the future. We're going to wrap it up. My man, Brett Scotto, CEO, Aimpoint Research. They're a global strategic intelligence firm that services agriculture. Um, Brett and I are going to be sharing the stage, not at the same time, because clearly it would be too much, right? I mean, you're up there, I'm up there. It just wouldn't work, right? <laughs> It'd be fun, though. <clears throat> uh, so anyway... We're going to be at the Council of Producers and Distributors of Agrotechnology Conference. That's May 19th and 20th in Nashville, Tennessee. I, I'm the closing slot. I think he's the, uh, on the on the prior day. Um, but we're going to give them lots of information. So if you happen to be listening to this and you were thinking about attending that conference, by golly, you should attend that conference. Um, one last thought. Wrap me up here. The farmer of the future. Give me the give me the wrap up going out the door. What well, do like I, need I to know? See, what do I need to know if I'm in the business and I'm calling on them for my business or if I am an operator? What do I need to know? Well, if you're calling on the farmer of the future, one thing you have to know is that they are loyal to one thing, and that is ROI. And, you know, they value relationships like all of us do in agriculture. But at the end of the day, they are willing to shift suppliers, shift companies, build new relationships, have a global view. Uh, and willing to try new things a lot faster than many of the farmers. So if you're serving a farmer of the future, you really think about your value proposition and how you're making them better and more competitive. Uh, you know, for, the, for all of the folks that are listening here, Damien, I, you know, I want to 
wrap up with one important point, and that is thanks for what you do. Thanks for being in this business of agriculture. It is foundational to our national security. I look forward to coming back and talking about that. But, you know, we have uh, incredible security here in the United States, largely because we can produce the food, fuel, and fiber that we all need as a nation, and we have the ability uh, to project that around the world. And we should never take that for granted. Stable so, food supply and tremendous infrastructure. Um, you know, we'll, we'll look at what's happened with the Ukraine situation. Right. Stable food supply and amazing infrastructure is as important as tanks and fighter planes, you know, frankly. I think it's it may be more important. I mean, yeah. it is the foundation of societal stability. And without stability, you can have all the tanks in the world, but you're not going to be able to hold it together. His name is Brett Scotto. He's going to come back uh, and we're going to talk about food as national defense since he's an army guy and he's a research guy. Aimpoint Research is the name of his company he founded. If they want to find you and check out more stuff or hire you to come and do a presentation or whatever, where do they find you? Yeah, they can go to the website, uh, www.aimpointresearch.com. Thanks for being here. Been my privilege. Thank I you. Love, I, I love it. I love it. And I think I started off by saying it was all just crystal balls and palm reading. Anyway, <laughs> go, 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 go check his stuff out and he'll be back <laughs> on here. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and share this with your friends, agricultural and non-agricultural alike. Till next time, it's the business of agriculture. This episode of the business of agriculture was brought to you by Nori. If you're feeling left out of carbon markets, Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com slash growers.